Hey, glad you could join us today on RK Ministries podcast, where each week we engage culture with biblical truth by sharing a message of truth and hope from a biblical perspective. Like the podcast, share the podcast, subscribe to the podcast, find us on Facebook and Twitter, and hope that you enjoy today as you join us on this episode of RK Ministries podcast. Hey, if you have your Bibles with you, follow me over to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. We'll be looking at verses 22 through 23 uh, today. Romans 15, verses 22 through 23. And the Bible says, This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia, have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to to do it. And indeed, they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in the spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When, therefore, I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. So so that by God's will, I might come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today and again, we thank you for this privilege we have to be in your house. Lord, I thank you for the revelation of your word, the truth of your word. We know, Lord, that you use your word to lead us into truth, to prick our hearts and our minds. And uh, Father, we're asking this morning as we engage your word, this letter that you inspired Paul to write to the Roman believers, that you would use the spirit of the Holy Spirit to, to impact our hearts and our minds. Help us to hear, help us to understand. May it, may it change the way we think. Cause us to be faithful to you and challenge us, Lord, in those areas where we are weak. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, we come to probably what is officially Paul's end to this letter. The next chapter, we'll have a a lengthy section of greetings, and then we'll have a doxology at the end. So we are probably two sermons away from being done with the book of Romans. And then from there, we will move into our study on the Decalogue, the the Ten Commandments. And I heard this morning, I don't listen to, to the radio or music 
that much when I drive. Usually it's a podcast or a lecture or a debate or something. But on occasion, I will turn it on. And so this morning I was riding by myself over here and I turned on K-Love. And just to be honest with you, not, nothing necessarily wrong with most of the music on K-Love. All right, there are some shallow things on there. But if K-Love would just get rid of uh, the people who talk and just play the music, it would be a lot better place. Well, there was this lady on there this morning talking, and she got to talking about this issue that she felt that she had dealt with in her life called um, comparing, where she would compare herself to other people or compare her vehicle to someone else's vehicle and so on and so forth. And I got to thinking, that is exactly why we need to understand the reality of the abiding presence, the abiding uh, nature of the law of God. Because what she was really talking about was covetousness. She was talking about the sin of covetousness, the 10th commandment. And she didn't even realize what it was that she was talking about. And so that's just a commercial for why it's important for us to understand why we cannot be saved by accomplishing or doing the works of the law. Just like Paul told us in Romans chapter 8, when we come to faith in Christ, God's redeeming work in us, the Holy Spirit in us, allows us to be able now for the first time in our life to see the law of God fulfilled in us. And it's through this Christian ethic of love that that is accomplished in our life. And so we're going to spend several weeks, uh, probably a couple months in the law, understanding what God was saying to us and how it is still relevant to us uh, today. Now, it has nothing to do with the text we're in today, but I wanted to share that with you because sometimes when we think about the law, we have an aversion to it to start with, right? We were antinomian by nature. We do not like the law of God, and especially uh, we who are under grace say, you know, we don't need that stuff. We just need, you know, just love. Well, uh, that's how you fulfill that law that we don't like. So anyway, I hope you'll be preparing yourself for that. Go read Exodus chapter 20 uh, to prepare yourself for that uh, sermon. So Paul, in this section here, finalizes his official letter to these saints, and he lays out for us his plan, again, another aspect of his plan for the future. And so in this section, I think that there are some examples that Paul lays down for us from his character and how God used him that you and I can emulate. You remember Paul tells us in another place to follow him as he follows Christ. And so I think this is these are some things we can glean from this passage that help us follow Paul as he follows Christ. And we can, we can, we can live in the same kind of faithfulness that Paul has to the calling on his life. So we're going to look at this passage from three uh, main headings. First, we will see Paul's passion for ministry in verses 22 through 24. Then secondly, we'll see Paul's passion, uh, or excuse me, the first one is Paul's passion for missions. The second one is Paul's passion for ministry in chapter, in verses 25 through 28. And then the third one is Paul's plea for prayer in verses 29 through uh, 33. So first, we'll see Paul's passion for ministry in verses 22 and 24. And Paul says, this is the reason why I have so often been hindered 
to come to you. So first we've got to see what is Paul talking about? Why is, what are the reasons or what is this reason that he says that he has been hindered from coming to Rome? Because he's already told us that he has long desired to come to Rome. Well, we learned just last week, right, toward the end of last week, that the reason Paul has been hindered is because his focus has been on sharing the gospel where the gospel has never been heard before. He didn't want to plant or or build on someone else's foundation. God had called him and given him a desire to go places where no one had heard the name of Jesus Christ. And so that got me to thinking about my life, right? While God may not always call me to a place where no one has ever heard the gospel of Christ, if I just look at Paul's passion for doing what it is that God called him to do, Do I have that same kind of passion in my life? Does it drive who I am as an individual? Does my relationship and my calling, then, you know, I use the word calling and sometimes that's loaded, right? That's a loaded word in in Christian circles because we think the only people who are called are those who are in the professional side of ministry, right? I.e. those who get paid to do what they do, right? So someone like me. But God has called every believer. Every single one of you who are a Christian, God has called you to some aspect of ministry, right? And so are you passionate about what it is that God has called you to do? And the ultimate calling he's placed on all of our lives is Matthew 28, 18 through 20, right? All authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth, Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples, how does that calling look in your life, right? It doesn't always look like somebody behind a pulpit or someone who sits or stands at a lectern in the Sunday school room. It might look like a mom who is raising her kids and she's fulfilling her calling to make disciples first and foremost around the kitchen table, Right? Or it may be that it looks like a person who, you know, um, works at a convenience store who is spending their time while they're doing their job sharing with people the reason for the hope that lies within them. It can be that, that basic, right? And you guys have heard me use this term before, this grassroots Christianity. For the majority of believers throughout history, you know how they accomplish their faithfulness to God? Not going around the world, sharing the gospel. And again, don't, don't hear that I'm saying anything's wrong with that. We need that, right? We need Paul's to do that. But for the majority of us, our faithfulness to God looks like this. Every day I get up. Every day I go about my life. And every day I share with people the reason for the hope that lies within me. Wherever I am and whatever I'm doing. And you fill in the blank for your life. Does your calling as a Christian drive who you are in this world? If it doesn't, then we have to work on ourselves. Because it ought to. And that's what drove Paul. Because Paul, hey, he was bivocational. Wasn't he? We're going to hear in a little bit through a parallel passage that even as a prisoner, he paid his own way. Isn't that amazing? 
And so the next thing we see is, again, it parallels Paul's, uh, in verse 23, his faithfulness to this call. He had a passion for the call that God placed on him. He was faithful to this call. He, he says in this letter, I, I have no more room in this part of the world. In other words, I have gone to every major city, Paul says, and I have shared the gospel. I have planted the seed of the gospel in every major city in this region. Now, I got to move on. I got to go somewhere else. And he was faithful to do whatever it was and to go wherever it was that God had asked him to go. And so that ought to cause us to ask a question. Am I to the point in my walk with the Lord that I am willing to go and do whatever it is that God has called me or asked me to do. And I got to tell you, sometimes that's not a comfortable place to be when God calls you to do something. Think about Abraham. God says to Abraham, you go to the place I'm going to show you, but I'm only going to show you one step at a time. And Abraham uprooted his family and left everything he knew and followed God without any certainty other than the fact that he had faith in the God who called him. Are we willing to walk like that in this world? Because sometimes God will lead us to places that we've got to look at and say, I don't know about that, Lord. But God says, I'm with you. And that's the most important thing. And then the, the final thing is, is Paul's future plan in this section, in verse 24. He says, listen, I, I, I want to go to Spain, uh, but I'm going to go to Spain by way of you. So in other words, I'm going to come to Rome, and I'm going to uh, spend some time with you, and I'm hoping that you will help me spiritually and emotionally and financially to get to, to Spain, where I can carry the gospel uh, to a people who have not heard the truth of Jesus Christ. And, you know, what does that say about a, a, a church, right? We'll see in just a moment another church, we'll, a couple of them we'll look at, who are involved in ministry in that way. This church, he expects this church to be mission-minded. He expects this church to help him spread the gospel around the world. What about our church? How are we mission-minded? How are we helping spread the gospel around the world? How are we being intentional about doing that? Maybe we should ask ourselves those questions. And if we're not that intentional about doing it, maybe we ought to become that intentional about doing it. What about we as individual believers? How, how important is it for us to see that the gospel is advanced? What are we doing in our individual lives to see that the gospel is getting advanced beyond our Judea, beyond our Samaria? How are we seeing that the gospel gets advanced to the uttermost parts of the world? Paul had a passion for the ministry that God had called him to, our mission that God had called him to. Now we see Paul's passion for the ministry in verses 25 through uh, 28. In the first section in verse 25, we see Paul's heart. At present, however, I want to go to Spain. I want to come see you, but I have something else I must do. At present, however, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. Now, we're going to stop there because what Paul has just said Hey, I'm at Corinth. This is where Paul's writing the book of Romans from. He's at Corinth. 
which Corinth is probably about 742 miles from Rome, and it's northwest of Corinth. And Paul says, before I come that 742 miles, I'm going to go about 1,000 miles in the opposite direction to bring aid to the poor Christians in Jerusalem. And then I'm going to come back to you. So Paul says, I'm about to make a 2,000-mile detour before I come to you to go to Spain. That's how important this was for Paul to minister to those who were in need in Jerusalem. Paul went all over the, the known world of that day, all over that region, planting churches. But that did not cause Paul to lose sight of the importance of caring for the individual people in those churches. Paul had a heart to minister to believers. He had that pastoral heart. How about us? Do we care about the hurting in our own community, in the church? Do we care about the hurting beyond that? Do we care about our brothers and sisters who are hurting around this world to even take time to mention them in our prayer? Do we even think about them? I have to I confess myself. I don't think about them enough. Right? I don't think about we We have it made in this country as believers. In our history, we have been the freest generations of Christians to ever exist. While at the same time, we have more believers giving their lives, their property, their their sustenance because of their faith in Christ. And for the most of us, we don't even think twice about it, even if we think once about it. I would encourage you to do this one thing as a, as a believer. I get an email every single week from a group called Voice of the Martyrs. Google them. Find them. Because the reason I do this is not because I'm a super holy saint. Here's the reason that I do that, that I signed up on their email list. is so that every time they send an email, that God would use that email to force me to think about what's happening around this world for my brothers and sisters in Christ who are not as fortunate as me. Because you know what will happen if I don't get that email? I will never think about them because I get so wrapped up in my little world and and complain about all the problems I have as a believer in the freest country on the planet that I don't even think about people who are losing their life because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Shame on me. Shame on me that it takes me to force myself to think of that by getting an email sent to me every single week. I encourage you to do that for yourself, right? Because what we read about in Revelation and the persecution that John talked about in the first century is going on right now in this world. And Paul was concerned about that. And he was concerned about those who were less fortunate than even he was, right? How about us? Are we intentional in caring for other people, other believers in particular? So that leads us to the second section, 26 through 27, is the joy of benevolence, this joy of giving. Look at verse 26 and 27. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased. They didn't do it out of coercion. 
Paul didn't twist their arm to do it. They were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it. Two times he lets us know this was their, hey, if you ever go to Chick-fil-A, it was their pleasure to give to these Jerusalem saints who were in need. He didn't have to beat them over the head about it. Their heart's desire, and it brought them joy to give to those who were in need. And then he has this little phrase at the end of that sentence, and indeed they owed it to them. Well, what does he mean by those two things? One, the joy of benevolence, it pleased them. It ought to be pleasing to us to help those who are in need. Why in the world does God bless us with stuff anyway? Just so we can be fat, dumb, and happy? No, God blesses us with stuff so we can be a blessing to other people. We can be a blessing to his kingdom. We, and again, I'm preaching, when I'm up here preaching, I hope y'all know I'm preaching to me just like I'm preaching to y'all, okay? As a matter of fact, I have to hear it twice because I got to study it first. And then I got to get up here and say it again to, to, to you guys. But we've got to get to the place in our life where we understand that everything that we have and that we own, in air quotes, that we own, that God has blessed us with it, not merely so we can be blessed, but that we can be a blessing to his kingdom and to those around us. Everything we have is his. And we've got to begin to live like that so that things don't control us and that we manage the things that we have in a way that brings glory and honor to God by how we use them for his kingdom and to benefit those uh, that are around us that may be less fortunate than us. And so just a couple of things about this idea of joy, a couple of passages that uh, I came across when I was thinking about the joy of benevolence or the joy of giving. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, in his inner man, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Giving ought not ever be under compulsion. And it ought, you not, ought not ever do it reluctantly or grudgingly, some translations may say. We ought to give because it is the pleasure of our heart to do so. And what does Paul say in this passage? And again, this is relating to that giving, to, to collect this offering, to meet the needs of those people. <coughs> he says, we do what we do as we have decided in our own hearts to do. Again, this is not a sermon on giving, but I, I bring that whole thing over into tithing, right? You, you hardly ever hear me talk about money and beg people for money and chase, chasing you for what. I have no idea what anybody gives, and I don't ever want to know what you give. It's none of my business. It's between you and God, right? And I think that the, the ethic of giving that the New Testament teaches is the ethic of giving for all manner of giving. It ought to be Ananias and Sapphira. What did Peter say to them? While it was in your possession, didn't you have control to do whatever you wanted to do with it? You could have sold the property and kept all of it, and nobody would have said a thing to you. What was their problem? It was not, it was not that they gave only a portion to the church. The problem was that they lied about what they gave so that they could garner favor in the eyes of believers. Same thing with your money. God gave it to you. 
You give according to the desire of your heart. Here's my philosophy on giving if you just want to know it, whether it's what you put in the offering plate or what you do outside of that. If God has blessed you with a lot, well, then by God, you ought to give a lot. If God has blessed you with a little, then you ought to give a little. If God hadn't blessed you at all, I guess you're off the hook then. <laughs> but here's the problem with that. God, there's not a person who is a believer in Jesus Christ who has not been blessed by God. Now, I'm not talking about just monetarily. The greatest blessing that God has ever given you and he's ever given me is redemption in Christ Jesus. I didn't deserve it and you don't deserve it. And if God doesn't do anything else for you, that is enough. And just because of that blessing, we ought to give. In service of God, we ought to give to help the kingdom of God. We ought to give to those who are in need, especially those among the kingdom of God. Second verse, Acts 20, 35. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus. How he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And that's one of those um, counter-cultural concepts as it comes to America. Why? Because what do we teach our kids every single year on December 25th? What do we teach them? It is more blessed to receive than to give. Now, again, I'm not saying we ought not celebrate Christmas, okay? I'm just saying a lot of times the way we do Christmas, we pile so much junk under a tree that we overwhelm them with stuff. And for a lot of people, that's what Christmas is about, receiving stuff. And if you're a kid, a week, two weeks, a month, what happens to most of that stuff? It gets thrown in a corner somewhere and you never touch it again. Well, we carry that over into our life, don't we, as adults? What do we do? We spend our life, our time, our energy, our resources accumulating stuff. And then what do we do with that stuff? We pay somebody a fee so that I can use a garage that you have built down the road to store the stuff that I can't store at my house. And we leave it there for a year, two years. And we don't even know what's in there. Isn't that the mindset of the American adult? We accumulate so much stuff, we don't even know all the stuff we got. And if we ever decide to move, move, we say, Lord, where did all this stuff come from? Right? And so our mindset, while we might not say it, we might don't, not believe we think it, our mindset is it is more blessed to receive than it is to give. Not for the Christian. It ought to be that it is more blessed for me to help someone, to give to someone, to share in the bounty that God has given me than it is for me to receive. And the only thing that can change that in our life is the Holy Spirit. It's the only thing that can change in me. You might be more spiritual than I am, but that's the only thing that can change in me is the Holy Spirit changing the way that I think. And so Paul had that, had that understanding. Then we see uh, the, the reality of our spiritual unity. I didn't get to the, the, the duty. Let, let's go ahead and do the duty part because that's in the end of verse, verse 27. Listen, he says, they owed it to them. 
Not only, not only was it their pleasure to do it, and it ought to be joyful for them to do it, and they're not compelled to do it, but they owed it to them. It was their duty and responsibility to give. Listen to these parallel passages, Proverbs 14, 31. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. Boy, you ought to underline that. You ought to highlight that in your heart. If we oppress someone who is in need, we insult the very person who made them, the very being who made them. That's sin. I get it. You know, we have to make decisions when you see the person standing on the side of the road with the sign, right? And then they get in their pickup truck. It's better than your pickup truck when they leave that corner, right? We've all seen that. We, we all understand that. But here's the reality of that, and it's something that God has to teach me. Yeah, I need to be wise as, as a serpent and harmless as a dove, and I need to be a good steward of what God has given me. But I'm here to tell you, if you see that person on the side of the road, you see that person in Walmart parking lot or wherever they may be with their sign, if God impresses upon you, hey, you need to help this person. If you give them a dollar, you give them $5, you give them canned goods, whatever it is you give them, guess what? You've done what God asked you to do. It's on them what they do after that. And if they're pulling the wool over your eyes, it's not on you. It's on them. You be obedient to what God impresses upon you to do in those situations. And God will bless you for that. And he'll judge them if they're doing it in a sinful way. So put, put the, the onus where it ought to be. First, first John three seventeen. But if anyone has the world's goods, well, who in here has some world's goods? Well, everybody who's sitting in this room. If anyone has some world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? That's a powerful verse of scripture, isn't it? Again, I get it. We can't help everybody all the time. Even Jesus reminded us of that. The poor you will have with you always, right? We can't help everybody all the time. But if our heart is that we're not going to help anybody, then there's something wrong inside of us. There's a spiritual deficiency inside of us. And that spiritual deficiency may be that we don't even have the love of God in our heart because we've never been redeemed before. That's what John is saying. The heart of a Christian ought to be having a desire to help those who are less fortunate. Why? Because God helped you. And there's nobody less fortunate than you when it comes to redemption. And we're all in the same boat. And then we, we move on to this reality of our spiritual unity. Why is it that they owed them that? Because the Gentiles became partakers with the Jews in the blessing of God. You remember Romans chapter 11? We have been grafted in. Those who are wild olive branches had been grafted into that one old olive tree, both Jew and Gentile celebrating and, and, and being nourished by the same root. We become one body in Christ Jesus. Just a couple of passages to remind us of that. Ephesians 3, 6. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. Members of the same body. Man, please don't miss that. There is one body of Christ. And it's made up of both Jew and Gentiles who believe in Jesus Christ. They're not two peoples of God. There is one people of God. That's what Paul's been telling us in the entirety of the book of Romans. And all of those people come to God the same way. 
through Jesus Christ. And because we who were Gentiles and were far away, we were alien, we were outside of the commonwealth of Israel. Now through Christ, we have found that we are joint heirs. We are part of the promise of God. We have joined in to this one family of God. We ought to want to help even those who are our Jewish brothers and sisters what Paul's saying to these believers. Galatians 3.14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. You see how Paul's tying this up? It's not just a Romans thing. He said it in Galatians. He said it in Ephesians. We as Gentiles are partakers of the same promise that God gave to Abraham in Genesis. And we partake through Jesus Christ. In Galatians 3.29, and if you are are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. One people of God in Christ Jesus and all of us take part in the same promise that God gave Abraham in Genesis. That's why it's our duty. And then... um, Oh, I think that's it. Let's move on to the next to the next one. Paul's plea for prayer. Paul's plea for prayer. Verses 29 through 33. First, we see Paul's confidence in this blessing of Christ. And it depends on, on your translation. If you have the King James Version, it's going to say in the last part of verse 29 that I believe when I come, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ or something to that effect. If you have the King James Version. If you have a a more modern translation, the ESV, NIV, American Standard, whatever it may be, it's going to say exactly what we read earlier, that if I come, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Now, just a little textual criticism. And when you think about textual criticism, when people use that term, it's not that they're criticizing the text. Okay? It is thinking about the text, analyzing the text, examining uh, the manuscripts of the text to come to what is closest to the original that we can get, okay? That's what's meant by textual criticism. So why the difference is what I got to say. Because I know everyone in here doesn't have the same version that I have, right? Why the difference, in particular in the King James and the ESV? Well, it's two, in a very layman's kind of way, it's two manuscript lines. They don't use that language anymore in textual criticism. They're moving, it's transitioned. But anyway, so you can understand it. The King James Version comes from the Textus Receptus, and the Textus Receptus has two uh, foundational aspects. One, Desiderius Erasmus produced what was the first uh, Greek New Testament in history, just prior to or in the onset of or in the midst of the Reformation, okay? And Desiderius Desiderius Erasmus used what manuscripts he had, maybe a half a dozen that he used to construct the Textus Receptus. Textus Receptus is what the King King James Version is based upon. But the TR that is used today, the Textus Receptus that is used today, is one that was actually back-translated from 
the King James Version into Greek so that it would match exactly to what was said in the King James Version when those translators translated. So that's why you have some differences. While as most modern translations are translated based upon an eclectic concept. In other words, out of the five over 5,000 Greek manuscripts and fragments of manuscripts and um, the various, I don't know if it's 10 or 20,000 uh, translations into other languages. They examine all of that data and then they compile what they believe is closest to the original because we don't have the original, right? But we have everything that the original says plus. And we're just kind of, I say we, they're just kind of sorting out what the plus is, okay? And so that's why the difference is there. But it doesn't change the truth of what Paul just said, does it? When he comes, he is coming with the fullness of the blessing of Christ. And what is he coming with? Well, he just wrote a whole book about it. The gospel of Jesus Christ, right? And he's coming to them with this blessing of Christ and with the, the it's, really, it's really from the root word we get eulogy, the good words of Christ, okay? And so he's coming to them with that blessed word and the blessing of Christ. Paul's appeal for prayer. And this, this is a very powerful section in this scripture. And, and it's probably one I spent most time. I got a whole page of notes on this one section of scripture because it struck me when I read this in that way. Paul's appeal for prayer. The first thing I noted in this prayer is that this is a Trinitarian prayer. Look, look at verses 30 and 32 and how Paul appeals to them. He says, I appeal to you. How does he appeal to them? In, in essence, by the authority of Christ. Look, the first words he says, by our Lord Jesus Christ. And then how else? What's the second way he appeals to them? He appeals to them by the love of the Spirit. And I believe it's the Holy Spirit. He appeals to them by the love of the Holy Spirit that ought to be unified in every believer right? And then who is the ultimate audience for this prayer? I appeal to you by our Lord Jesus Christ, by the love of the spirit to strive together with me in prayer to God, the father on my behalf. All you think the doctrine of the Trinity is hard to see in the Bible. Well, there it is right before our eyeballs. Paul just said, God, the father, God, the son, God, the spirit. I appeal to you to pray with me and all three persons of the Trinity are involved in this appeal to prayer. Prayer is a Trinitarian event. Christianity is a Trinitarian event. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are all involved in redeeming humanity. Right? Every, every person of the Trinity has a role to play. And then it's a tenacious prayer. That's the best I could do with T's trying to alliterate. It's a tenacious prayer. Look what he says. I appeal to you, and then he uses a word, uh, sunagonizmai is the word. Soon is a preposition. It means with, okay? Agonizmai, you can already hear the English word in agonizmai. What, what do you hear when you hear agonizmai? The first part, agonize. Agonize with me in prayer. Isn't that a powerful way to look at prayer? Paul is saying to these people, really, Agonizma has the idea of going into a contest, 
stepping into the arena, doing battle. It, it has this idea of, of strenuous zeal or passion when it comes to prayer. And so Paul is telling them, it's, it's kind of like Jesus at Gethsemane, isn't it? What did Jesus, the noun form of agonizmai is used to describe Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane. He was in agony. And what happened when Jesus prayed in Gethsemane? He prayed so hard and passionately that not only did it impact his spirit, but it impacted his flesh because his capillaries in his forehead burst and blood and water flowed as he prayed together. Sweat drops of blood. He agonized in prayer. So the obvious question that came to my mind is, how long has it been since I prayed like that? How long has it been since I went to battle in prayer? That I agonized. That I strove in prayer. That it not only affected me spiritually, but it impacted me physically. Because I'm so agonizing in the act of praying. And I don't want to tell you how long that is. Because shame on me. How about you? When you have that need in your life, that desperate situation, do you agonize? Do you strive in prayer before God? Are, are you you like Jacob? Do you wrestle with God and say, I'm not letting go until something happens? When's the last time we prayed like that? Shame on me. Shame on you. We say all the right words, right? His house is to be a house of prayer. But when we pray, it's usually trite and trifle wrote, right? Let us become a people who would agonize in prayer over our own lives, over the lives of our children, over the lives of our family, over the lives of those who are lost in this world, and that we would strive with God over these issues, knowing that I can't make God do anything but God has called me to lay it out before him in prayer and trust him to do what he's going to do. I guarantee you prayer like that will change you. It'll change me. And Paul called these people to agonize over him and with him in prayer. All right, last thing, we'll be out of here, six minutes. God's plan, I was thinking about this plan because Paul says, hey, I want to go to Rome, right? And I want to go to Rome by way of you. Well, we know Paul goes to Rome, right? He said, I got to go to Jerusalem first. And why is it that Paul's asking them to agonize with him in prayer? So that he might escape the unbelievers in Jerusalem because they were after Paul, the the Jewish unbelievers in particular. They were after Paul because of the gospel he was preaching. 
And he says, I want you to agonize with me in prayer that I might escape those who are the unbelievers in Judea. Well, here's another aspect about prayer. If these people did exactly what Paul asked them to do, I have no reason to doubt they didn't. I have no reason to doubt that Paul didn't strive in prayer. Guess what happens to Paul when he gets to Jerusalem? He doesn't escape the unbelievers in Judea. Does that mean God is not good? Because Paul strove in prayer about this issue, that he might be delivered. Because sometimes I think that's our mindset. God, man, seek, knock, ask. I've been seeking, knocking, and asking. And I ain't seen you doing it. We, we either look at it one or two ways. Well, that means there's something sinful wrong in my life or there's something wrong with God. But I want to paint a picture for you today that is contrary to the way we often think about God. Because, see, we've been so, so steeped and impressed uh, by the health and wealth gospel in this world. I, get, I know we're, we're not that way, right? We're good old Southern Baptists. We don't believe that junk, right? We write Joel Osteen off. We understand he's a cuckoo, Looney Bird. But I'm here to tell you exactly what they proclaim has impacted the way we think even in a good old Southern Baptist church. Because what we think is, if I'm not blessed, then there's something either wrong with me or something wrong with God. And we have a misunderstanding about what being blessed means. Right? The health and wealth gospel teaches us that blessing is all about the material. I have my best life now. Right? In this day. It's cake and ice cream. Right? If I have enough faith, if I say the right words then it's gonna, I'm going to have my Bentley. I'm going to have enough gas to go on my Bentley. I'm going to have food on my table. Everything's going to be fine and hunky-dory. Well, there's one person in particular that shoots a hole in that whole theory. We talked about it in Sunday school a little bit because the lesson pointed that out. There's one perfect human being on earth, holy God, holy man, and if there was anyone who should have been blessed because of their faith and their faithfulness in the sense that they had everything they ever needed and they were, had all the clothes they needed, they had the right kind of house and the right kind of position as far as society is concerned, right? It would have been Jesus. But what was Jesus' ministry full of? Yes, he'd done miracles. He performed miracles but he was running from people who hated him. And those Jews took him to Pilate because they couldn't kill him legally. And they took him to Pilate to have him killed. And just think about Paul. Paul's desire, go to Jerusalem, give this gift for the needs of the saints, then leave, go to Rome, go to Spain, share the gospel. And we all look at Paul, we emulate Paul, we say, Paul, if there was a person in this world that was as close to God, it would have been Paul, right? Saint among saints. But you know what happened to Paul when he got to Judea? 
he got arrested in Jerusalem. He got arrested. So did God not answer his prayer? Well, what was his ultimate prayer? One, that he would escape them. So in that way, he didn't escape them. But he wanted to go to Rome. But did God take him to Rome? Showed him. Took him to Rome as a prisoner. But look what happened to Paul along the way. That's the important part of the story. What did Paul do along the way? Paul was able to stand before two governors and share the gospel. Paul was able to stand before King Herod or King Agrippa and share the gospel. Paul was able to stand before Roman soldiers and share the gospel. Paul was on a boat that was shipwrecked and he was able to share the truth of God's gospel. Paul went to Rome and we'll see here in a moment if I get to these cross references. He stayed there for two years under his own accord. In other words, he was a prisoner, but he paid his own way and he was allowed to have whoever come to him. And the Bible says that he shared the gospel of Christ with everybody that came to him. And then the question is, did he ever go before Caesar? Because that's the reason he ended up in Rome. He appealed to Caesar. They would have let him go. Agrippa said, hey, if Paul had not appealed to Caesar, I would have let him go. Did Paul ever stand before Caesar? Because the book of Acts never tells us. We never see it anywhere in the Bible. Well, let me me read this passage, if I can find it, in my notes. Yeah, this is when Paul's on the ship going to Malta, or they they end up shipwrecked and land on Malta. Listen, Listen to this word that came to Paul by an angel of the Lord right before this ship crashed. Verses 24 through 25 in Acts chapter 27. And he said, this angel of the Lord, do not be afraid, Paul. Listen to this next sentence. You must stand before Caesar. Well, if God's true to his word, then that means Paul stood before Caesar. So listen, Paul ended up being a prisoner But his imprisonment allowed him the opportunity to share the gospel to people he would probably have never had an audience before. So sometimes when God calls us, he calls us down a difficult road. And that doesn't mean he's not good. And that doesn't mean we're not blessed. It just means sometimes God uses difficult roads to accomplish his path. And I get it. It's easy preaching and hard living, but we ought to get in the place where we are just like Paul when he says, hey, I know what it is to have a whole lot. I know what it is to have a whole, uh, uh, very little. But I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What's the implication is? It doesn't matter if I'm a prisoner or if I'm in the palace. I'll do whatever I do because of the Christ who strengthens me. And we see this example in the scripture a lot, don't we? What about Joseph, he went in a pit, he went in a prison, right? His life was not easy. It had difficulty, but what was God doing? God used Joseph. He sent him to Egypt the way he sent him to Egypt. And he used his brothers, and he used the slave traders, 
right? And he used the butler and he used the baker, but God sent Joseph to Egypt that way so that God could save a world. And he may do the same thing in your life. He may call you down a path that is difficult. Go read about Corey Ten Boom. It's not always cake and ice cream. And sometimes God uses that difficulty and the difficult path in your life to accomplish his will. And yes, sometimes it's, it's tough on us. It's tough on those who have to walk that. But it amazes me how that those who are believers who walk in that light, their faith in God never wavers. Yes, they wonder sometimes. Yes, they may say, Lord, I don't see what's happening here. But they're always faithful to do what it is God called them to do. And God does amazing, radical things, even in the difficulty of your life. So don't think just because you have difficulty, it is merely because there's sin in your life. It may be, right? If you do sinful things, you will suffer the consequences. And don't think that it's not because God hasn't blessed you. Because it may be the biggest blessing in the world that you're in the place that you're in because somebody is going to be changed forever. Maybe a whole group of people. Because you and I had to endure a little bit of difficulty in life. What a small price to pay that we endure pain and suffering in this world for the eternal glory of God to be revealed into a life that would head to damnation if they were not changed. And that amazing? That's what Jesus did for us. He endured the, endured the ultimate difficulty. Suffering and dying on a cross for somebody like me who does not deserve it. Will we be faithful no matter the cost? Easy to say in this nation that we live in right now, right? But all you got to do is look around the world and see the spirit of the age is already at work pressing in on those who are followers of Christ. More and more increasingly, those who adhere to the truth of this book are becoming the enemy, right? Will we be faithful in the face of persecution or trial? or tribulation. That's what determines success. You understand that? Is your faithfulness to God. Father, we come to you today. We thank you for this time you've given us to be in your word, these few moments we've had, Lord, to, to be in your word. And I ask, Father, that you would help us in this journey that you've called us to. We don't always know the path or the road Sometimes we're blinded by the eternal now. And we're asking you, Lord, that in spite of the circumstances and the situation that we find ourselves in, that you help us keep our eyes on you, stay faithful to you. Help us to always be ready to share the reason for the hope that is in us, even if our situation looks hopeless. We thank you, Lord, for everything that you are and everything that you've done. 
It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, I don't know what the Lord might have said to you today, but whatever he said to you, whatever you need to do, the altar is open. If you need to get saved, come up here. I'll show you from God's word how you can be a follower of Jesus Christ. Maybe you need to come pray for somebody. Maybe you need to repent of something. I don't know what it is. You just be obedient to the Lord.